week. So that of everything, a little bit of every person, uh, or three of us. So that was, uh, well, we'll see how tonight goes. And then you can vote. They'll be voting afterwards. Who would you like to see come back? I did, uh, I have decided, to, decided this afternoon that um, I am going to put a voting box, an anonymous voting box, the second to last week, because I know some of you are like, last week, pff, we're done. Um, to which we will have a Democratic vote, anonymous Democratic vote, for whether we bring back discussion leaders for next year. So you won't even have to write down anything. So get excited about that. No, there'll be some yes papers and some no papers. And you just take a little paper and you put it in the box nonchalantly. And then I'm going to tally them all up. And then I'll reveal the results. Probably in September. <laughs> Wouldn't that be, yeah. No stuffing of the ballot box. We'll have a monitor. We'll have a, an anonymous uh, judge, a voting judge watching you. So, yeah, recount. <laughs> There'll be no hanging chads on this one. All right, uh, unless any chads want to vote, then they can decide on that. All right, let's pray, and then uh, let's continue this journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Father God, we just <clears throat> thank you for tonight. I thank you for the time to be together. I do thank you for the extended daylight, even though it's a false <laughs> reality. Um, but we do thank you for this time to be together and to open up your word. And we just uh, we ask that you would be with us and everything that's going on as we are in the thick of this Lenten season, Lord. We just continue to, continue to pray that your spirit will be drawing us closer to you and speaking into our lives um, through each other and through our experiences and through your word. Um, so be with us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as I have been saying, probably at nauseum, I'm going to continue to say, uh, even if it is at nauseum, one thing that we have to constantly be remembering and reminding ourselves of as we walk through any piece of scripture is that we are not talking about unique sets of texts as if they exist in their own space and time. And so we, we are limited on time, and so we divide up the text and how we go through the text, because frankly, we only have so much time. And as they compiled this current scriptures that we have, and as they've put it together over time through various translations, they have given us chapters and verses to try and make it easier for us. However, it has created massive hindrance to our understanding and interpretation of the text. And so I want to just continue to remind us, and in fact, you know, each week we've been trying to do these spiritual disciplines this, throughout this uh, calendar or this year of Matthew. And so this week, the, the discipline is to read 19 to the end of Matthew in one sitting every single day so that we see how this narrative plays out. You don't ever 
sit down and read, you know, two pages of a book as if it doesn't exist within the rest of that text. And so, again, I know we have this tendency to talk about, okay, this is the beginning of this section or the beginning or the end of this section. I want to remind us, we're not just parachuting in to mine out a spiritual nugget out of any text. And if we are, we're mis- un- misusing the Bible and misusing what Matthew's trying to do in the gospel. So, having said that, where did we just end last week? And by we, you're like, you weren't here, but I was here because I listened to it after the fact, so I was a part of the conversation. What just happened, or what was the big conversation at the end of the time we had last week? Forgiveness. Yes. So Jesus is talking about, you know, who's the greatest, and and then... You know, it's interesting how that sits within the rest of the, the context of where we are at within the gospel. And he flows, Matthew flows right out of that, out of this discussion on forgiveness, into the conversation about divorce. Very, very important. But how often is it the case that we just want to talk about the divorce passage, but we don't want to talk about the forgiveness passage? They go together. And so I want to, again, as we start hearing these words or reading these words, reading and hearing these words, Jesus has just said, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Key component. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Again, mass healing. We've seen these pockets happen throughout. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, We hear the echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Here's the saying. For there are eunuchs who have been been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. 
The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he actually continues. And it's hard for me to stop, but we only have so much time because to stop is to do the text a disservice, but I don't have a choice. Okay? <laughs> That's why I want us to read, just keep reading. Because the, this is not like the end. It's like last night, we're trying to watch the premiere of Ted Lasso, and our internet keeps glitching because we live in the boonies where we don't have, you know, we better have dial-up internet than anything else. And finally, I was like, I can't handle it. But then all night, I'm like, what happened? That's kind of where we're at. So we end with forgiveness last week, but we don't end. We take a pause, and we continue into this week. And so we want to continue to remind ourselves that forgiveness was on the words or on the mouth of Jesus, and then this question comes about divorce. Now, notice that Jesus has geographically turned in 19 and is headed uh, towards Jerusalem. That is an important point. And the Pharisees come to him, and why are they there? They're there to test him, and they ask him about this question of divorce. Now, you remember that we addressed this conversation back in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've had these various conversations, and if you've been paying attention, these themes keep getting repeated over and over and over because Matthew wants us to be reminded that these things keep coming up. And so it's for us, the listener and the reader, to be reminded and to see how Jesus uh, addresses these things. And how does he address these things? 
He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he quotes to him, or quotes to them out of uh, Genesis. And what he does is he quotes to them the ideal. So what we have in the Genesis depiction is the ideal. And I'm just almost done with this cold, and so I just have to keep drinking things. And so Jesus paints this picture of how marriage is supposed to be. This idealistic picture. God creates in the beginning, in Genesis, that is what he's quoting, man and woman, and they are to be joined together, and they are to be one flesh, and that they are no longer separate, but they are unified and one, and that union should never be separated. That is the ideal. And as we think about this, we think about where do we get our concepts of marriage? How has our understanding of marriage been shaped by either our own experience growing up, how our parents were, their marriages were, how our grandparents' marriages were, how our friends' parents' marriages were, how we've seen marriages depicted throughout uh, various cultural expressions, how our friends have chosen to express what marriage looks like. And Jesus is saying, this here is, in fact, the ideal. So that is very important for us to understand, that Jesus quotes the ideal, and they're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him, right? And they say, well, Moses permitted, in verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The other thing we have to always keep in mind is the marriage things are about protecting the wife. Because during the ancient Near Eastern times, wives had no status. They had no uh, political security or uh, legislative security. There were no laws to protect the women. And so if a husband decides that he no longer wants his wife, he kicks her out. And now she is destitute. She cannot be remarried because she's still technically married to that person. And she has no way to support herself. Well, what is one of the biggest themes that we've been talking about throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew? Jesus' concern for the people who are marginalized. And as John talked about last week in this concept of the little ones, how is it that we take that same theme and we look at this view of marriage And how Jesus is pointing out the fact that what Moses permitted was protection of the woman. It was not permission for the man. That's a very important distinction. So the the permission is to protect the woman. Because their certificate allows the woman to then go seek potentially another husband that then would provide her with protection. Also, there's these two schools within Jewish thought that debate around how, merit or how divorce is to be articulated, and part of that is happening within this conversation. But notice the words that Jesus chooses. Moses allows you to divorce your wives. That doesn't mean that it was 
the best thing. That doesn't mean that God somehow is saying, it's okay for divorce to happen. It's that it's going to happen. And so I want to provide an opportunity for those who are going to be harmed the most, the women, in this uh, divorce situation. So, Moses is permitting this to happen as a way to protect uh, the wife. And notice, as Jesus always does, he takes and, and he just escalates things. Remember back when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and as John talked about last week, the whole, did anyone do any surgery this week? I thought that was kind of funny last week when John talked about, you know, cutting off our arms and eyes and that sort of thing. And so Jesus takes the, the standard and then he just ratchets it up. And he says, the only permission that you have to divorce your wife is for this one standard. And why is that? Because God's care of marriage is so important. So God takes marriage so seriously that, that the limited standard is so small. But remember, where is this conversation happening within the narrative of Matthew? It's happening right after this conversation about forgiveness. And so how often would it be the case that a, a divorce wouldn't happen if the forgiveness that is talked about earlier in the same section of text, in the same arc of the narrative, would take place. And it's also of utmost importance for us, again, as we've said over and over and over, if someone is unsafe in their home, the requirement is to not have to stay in an unsafe environment. This doesn't allow us to say, well, yeah, Jesus says right here, you can't leave. If your spouse is, is causing you harm, you gotta stay because there's only one standard and that's sexual immorality and if that standard doesn't met, you gotta just endure the the abuse, no. Because, and frankly, women had zero options. No woman was ever divorcing a man, no matter what the case. And so Jesus is addressing the men and how they treat the women and saying, when you make a decision to be married to a person, that decision needs to be taken very seriously. And if you're going to come into this thing called marriage on a whim, you're going to have a problem. And how often is it that we, we see marriage from a very worldly perspective as a limited time engagement, not this permanent thing that God doesn't ever want to have fractured. 
Because again, how much, and we're going to talk about it when we talk about the, the rich young ruler, how much of the Gospel of Matthew has been about interpersonal relationships? And it's how we relate to one another, or in this case, how husbands relate to their wives. Again, this is 100% directed to men. Because the women, who, the women who heard this, they didn't have any options. They could never leave their husband. They could never divorce their husband. Which makes you think about the woman at the well who they said had five husbands. She didn't divorce a single one of them. That's a sidebar. That was free. So the disciples are flummoxed. And they're like, okay, well then it's better not to get married. <laughs> I mean, 12 bachelors. How hilarious is that? Like, yeah, you're right. See, we should never get married. Marriage is hard, so boys, let's just not do it. <laughs> but we know that Peter was married. Remember that? Because when Jesus is in his house, it's his mother-in-law, so Peter was married. How many dudes are like, oh, marriage is hard. Just don't ever do it. Well, let's talk about the standard then. <laughs> For the person who's like, I don't, yeah, okay, let's talk about this. Jesus uses this imagery of the eunuch. Now, there, as John pointed out, and we were discussing this, there's a word that's called celibacy, and then there's a word that's called eunuch. Those are not the same words. And I don't know if we need to do a biological lesson on what a eunuch is, but I remember teaching to the youth many years ago, and of course, some of the leaders wanted me to discuss what a eunuch was for all the junior high boys. Um, there's great discussion around whether or not Jesus is talking about actual physical eunuchs, or is it about this decision to not engage in sexual relationships in marriage. Either way, the point is the same. There are people who choose that singleness is going to be a reality for them. That's what, that's what this image is. Who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are people that, who choose that that marriage is never going to be a thing. And that's good. That's good. Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. But how often is it the case, especially in the church, that we look, if not down, sideways at people who are not married? Even people who are going through a divorce, it's like, well, I got somebody I'd like to set you up with. It's like, okay, whoa, time out. As if marriage is the standard upon which all relationships are built. You know, we see, I remember when Abby was working here, very early on, she was like, why do these people keep trying to set me up? with guys that I'm not interested in. Well, you got it. I mean, you're getting, you're getting into your late 20s. 
When are you going to meet somebody? Why? As if somehow singleness is a deficiency. And Jesus is saying, no, singleness is not a deficiency. Now, I understand some people don't want to be single. At the same time, people don't have to be married to be somehow complete within the kingdom of God. And it's this very interesting thing. And in fact, for a long time in the church, there was a big thing on the importance of singleness and the value of singleness and what a single person could do. And so then there was like this, well, maybe we should actually get back to getting married. Yes? Is there implication around the Catholic Church encouraging multiple children? That was a question. Contraception. Yeah, so the discussion around how uh, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church has viewed marriage and procreation and contraception and all those things. Yeah, fa fascinating conversation. Um, it, it's not just specifically the Roman Catholic Church, but church history in general has, has gone through these ebbs and flows of how we view marriage. And it's, it seems to be the case that marriage is not just about procreation. Um, and so that's a much larger conversation. Uh, whether I'm, I haven't really delved into that whole discussion on why Catholics have lots of kids. I'm just glad I'm not one. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if I could have handled 10 kids. I mean, I have friends that I was just like, wow, no wonder they have a 15-passenger van. Because they needed it. So yeah, interesting conversation. I haven't, I, I haven't really delved into that much. So, uh, But it is interesting. Thank you for the segue. Notice where we go from there. We go from this conversation about marriage and divorce into uh, no sexual engagement at all, the eunuchs, into children. <laughs> it's like kind of this interesting extreme in contrast as we flow through this. He says, Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Again, isn't it so interesting how, you know, we divorce, sorry, pun intended, maybe not necessarily. Uh, we separate these sections and we miss out on the, the irony that exists between those who choose not to have children and talking about the importance of children. And also we see this echo that we saw last week when we were earlier in this larger uh, section of red text where Jesus is talking about the importance of children. And John went through the big thing about talking about the least of these. And, and so 
Jesus is reminding us again here of the importance and the value of children, and he's setting us up for this next. Matthew's setting us up uh, through the arrangement of this narrative for this next section. But I want us to notice something here. Jesus not only sees the value in these children, he says, those who are going to possess the kingdom look like this. That's very important as we set this conversation up. Because remember, we were talking, we've been talking about you know, who's in, who's out, who's the greatest, who's not. Jesus reiterates, it's almost this uh, verbal sandwich of the importance of children and how they fit into the kingdom. But what does he do? He lays his hands on them. He touches them. And the importance of physical touch. And Amy talked about it back uh, when she was talking about the transfiguration and, and they were afraid and, they were, and, and Jesus touched them and the importance of the touch of Jesus and the importance of children. And, and I would be remiss to not point out, and I understand, you know, y'all are, are the elite. Y- y'all are very engaged uh, we have a problem. We have a deficiency. We have been running without our second service Sunday school for way too long because individuals are unwilling to commit to serving on a Sunday morning, to caring for these people that Jesus is talking about, that the kingdom of God is set forth for. But for some reason, we have a deficiency where we don't want to sacrifice time to serve the least of these, which are our children. And it's not babysitting. It's about touching them, loving them, caring for them, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And we have this whole segment that we're missing because we don't have enough people and I wish you could hear the, the number of calls and emails that Amanda and Betsy send out and say, please, will you help? And Allison trying to find people to serve in the nursery. And it's like, yeah, I'm busy. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the people that Jesus Christ says are the kingdom of God. And for some reason, we have decided that they're not that important. And this is... I, I'm not saying this to chastise the people that are in this room or watching at home. What I'm saying is, I need your help. We need your help. Many of you serve, and many of you serve in children's, and thank you for that. Many of you know many more people than I know, or at least Know them in a way that they like you more than they'd like me. And if you were to ask them to help you and join in with you, they would say yes. And they see me coming and they're just like, oh, he wants me to do something. I'm done. Let us not miss that. Let us not miss that. We started as a body that was committed to children. And for somewhere... Through COVID, it became convenient to not have to volunteer and serve in children's ministry. And 
that has become a major, major thing. You read this passage, and Jesus is like, the kids are of utmost importance. So why are we neglecting the kids? That was not in my notes. You need to thank, thank the Holy Spirit for that one. Amanda did not pay me. <laughs> exactly. But notice this, okay? So Jesus says these little children who have nothing, they are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then Matthew gives us the story of the rich young ruler. Again, we don't ever read the rich young ruler with the story about the children. They go together because it is of utmost importance for how we see what is happening here. So this man comes, and he makes a mistake, and he says, teacher. Jesus is not a teacher. He is the Messiah. Like, that is a big thing. It's, you know, anyone who uh, approaches me and refers to me as pastor, I'm like, you clearly don't know me. My name is not pastor. It's Eric. It's right here. That's maybe a little strong. He says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And what good deed must I do? So clearly, this is not a question that has changed throughout um, the last couple thousand years. And Jesus turns it on his head, and he says, why do you ask about goodness? There is only one who is good, and that is God. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Again, Jesus has to know. He's setting this guy up. Just keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? And notice the list. What do all of those things have in common? Not, I mean, they're in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we got that. <laughs> what is the connection about all? Every single one of those commandments. Excuse me? Yes, it's about how we treat each other. I mean, I don't know if you're seeing this, but it's there that so much of what Jesus talks about is how we treat each other. And Jesus sets him up. And he throws in, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which is a whole Whole big other conversation that we've been having for many interesting times. The question that is very interesting that uh, my friend Derek, may he enjoy his time in Australia, what if I don't love myself? It's hard for me to love my neighbor if I don't love myself. And the young man is like, yeah, sweet. I've done all those things. I've kept the commandments. Which begs the question around this idea of how we view the law. How often is it that, that we, we demonize the law, and yet Jesus doesn't ever demonize the law? He says, if you want to be on the pathway to eternal life as a Jew, it's following the law. Interesting thing. He says, if you would be perfect, 
If you desire to receive perfection, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, which is another phrase that we've talked about before, and come follow me. Notice that connection. He doesn't tell him to go be a philanthropist. He tells him to go get rid of his possessions. Why does he, and then follow him. Why is that important? This is not a polemic against having stuff. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I believe it was three, one, two, three, Tim asked, what does it mean to take up your cross? What does it look like to take up your cross? And I think I said earlier, we can't carry the things of the world and carry our cross at the same time. And so earlier Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, which means disown the world and embody my life. You can have nothing that is grabbing a hold of you and pulling you back to this world. When we look at when the disciples were called, leave all this stuff and follow me. It's not despising that, those things. It's not rejecting those things. It's moving beyond the things of this world that have our allegiance. Because doing the good things, he's like, yeah, I'm doing those things. And Jesus says, yes, the challenge is your allegiance is to your stuff. And your allegiance cannot be to your stuff and to me. And now for some of us, we, we immediately say, well, good thing I'm not rich. Except for Gallup in 2013, that was the latest data I could find from Gallup, the median world income. Any guesses? Median world income for an individual in 2013. 10,000. We have a winner. If we were playing prices right, he would have even won everything. It's like an extra thousand bucks. $10,000. So I'm pretty sure every single one of us in here qualifies into the rich standard of the world median income. And so when we read this, we're like, okay, yeah, maybe that is me. But for some of us, our, our money and our stuff is, really means not, nothing. It, the question becomes, what is the thing that if Jesus asked us to, to walk away from and follow him, would we be like, oof, yeesh, oof. I was having a hilarious conversation with my friend and he, about spending money, and, and he knows that we've known each other for a very long time, a couple decades, and he, he loves to harass me because there's certain things that I have no problem spending money on, like literally no conscious thought. One of them happens to be cheese. Now, there's other things I'm like, $25 T-shirt? <laughs> what? $25 for a half a pound of the best cheese? Absolutely. Like, that's going to last you approximately one hour. That's going to last you maybe 10 years. Yeah, but, I mean, 
I got a lot of t-shirts. I don't have any of that cheese. And have you tried the cheese? I mean, come on. So as we look at this, what we see is Jesus not calling him to rebuke money in and of itself. He's calling him to walk away from the things of this world that have their claws in him that are calling for his obedience and his allegiance, which in some ways, as some commentators point out, this is the first commandment, no other gods but me. And so money for this person is their God, and so it's holding them back. Because notice, he goes away and he's sorrowful. And he's sorrowful not because he doesn't understand. It's because he doesn't want to choose Christ. He would rather have his stuff. And again, we've seen this thread before. The pearl of great price. The, the man, he finds this pearl and he goes and he sells everything he has to inherit the kingdom of God. And so we see these echoes moving forward into a more developed story and a single person that asks Jesus real questions. And the disciples are like, well, wait a second, because in their world, people who have money are the most important. People who have status are the most important. People who have youth are the most important, but a particular type of youth, because children, not so much. Rich, young, ruler. He hits all three boxes. He is the man. He is the best. And the disciples are like, if he doesn't get in, how are we going to get in? And notice, as we have been talking throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, Jesus takes every concept of the world and he flips it on its head. The children, the people that are cast off and rejected, those are the ones that are inheriting the kingdom. The person who has everything, status, power, money, not in. It's fascinating. And the disciples are, are like, well, how is this ever going to happen? And Jesus says this hyperbolic statement about the eye of the needle and the camel. They're like, then who's in? And he says, it's not about what you do. For you to get in, it's impossible. But God brings you in. And Peter says, we've left everything. I mean, like, what else is there? And it's fascinating because in 28, we see this phrase, this new world, and, and it, for some, out. <laughs> I know I've been hinting at this and talking about it before. You know, we have this concept of going to heaven. And then we get glimpses like this where the words of Jesus are not about some celestial, otherly existence. It's about a regeneration of this place. And the Greek words that he uses are about the 
regenerated present, which in a lot of ways just really blows our minds and messes with us to the point where we're like, yeah, whatever, let's just think about something else. And Jesus says, within this new regenerated world where, where I am on my throne and, and God's kingdom is fully present, everyone who has abandoned this world, that's all these characters, all these characteristics. And remember back when he was in the house, they're like, your, your, your family's outside. And he's like, who is my family? And everyone's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you just said that. Again, there's this echo here of everyone who has left this world, that is in essence what he is saying, for me, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Everyone who has rejected and abandoned the lure of this world and followed me, because those two things must be conjoined. They must be conjoined together. They will inherit eternal life. And they won't just inherit eternal life. They will receive a hundredfold. And again, I know we've talked about this. What would it look like if when we talked about following Jesus Christ, we didn't talk about what we have to give up. We would talk about what we get. We wouldn't talk about, well, yeah, I got to sell everything. Maybe it's not about selling everything. It's not, following Jesus Christ isn't about what we lose, it's about what we gain. And the investment, I'm not an investment person, but I'm pretty sure if you receive a hundredfold on your investment, that's a pretty good deal. Last I heard, CDs were about 3.5%. And then he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And we've seen this arc of Jesus continually trying to orient the disciples to understand that who you think is important is not of the most importance. It's the people that you think are of least importance are actually the most important in the kingdom of God. And it completely changes how we view people. We may be a little lighter on our discussion groups, so you can consolidate as you choose. Um, I had a printer issue, so hopefully someone in your group has a set of questions. There are more at the back if you need them for your discussion group. And no colluding together to sway the vote. This is a democracy. Democracy. 